if I can just uh, give a little context for a second. Most of the time when uh, there are movies about Jesus' life, they're kind of like docudramas or documentary things because the people who watch them usually already know what's going to happen at the end, right? Like, that's why we do Easter every day. That's why there's crosses all over everything in our culture because we know that Jesus dies at the end. But the twist is he rises from the dead. Now, if you're living at that, like, and, and so the movie does like this, like long, 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 twist, over, right? Uh, and as far as movies go, that's terrible, right? Like, because you're, oh, happy ending, ding, over, movie ends, right? And so you either need to make a combined movie of, like, a, the gospel and the book of Acts, but that movie is, like, Lord of the Rings long, and so you, well, most of us aren't going to watch that, but... <laughs> Some of you are really into that kind of length of sitting in one spot. But there is, uh, when people are living out Jesus' life in real time, what I want to try to get us to like, picture is when Matthew writes this book, there are people who are reading it who have no context of as far as what's going to happen at the end of the story. And Jesus is riding into town, and the crowds are supporting him, and the people are welcoming him, and he's teaching with authority, and the people are responding. He's healing people. He's feeding people. All sorts of good things are happening. And if you're just reading through this and you don't know the ending, you're starting to think, like, maybe Jesus can pull this off. Like, maybe Jesus can actually begin a movement that overthrows the Roman government and reestablishes the people of God and gives them the freedom that God had promised them. The promised land is actually going to be the promised land, right? And if you're just reading along, you can kind of see that. Now, there's been three times already that Jesus has kind of said, hey, at the end of this, I'm going to die. But you don't notice that in the movie because you're more interested in how great things are going for Jesus. Does that make sense? And so you're, and, and so really if, if this is made into a movie, and I'm not a movie maker, but if you are, this really should be like a, like a thriller, like you don't know what's going to happen. And, and Jesus has confronted the authority, and it's going really, really well for him. Like he's stood up to big religion and been able to, from his grassroots movement, all of a sudden this thing is going to happen. And we know and we hope, and the reason that we paid money for a ticket to watch this movie is because we think Jesus is going to win at the end. And this week is the big turn, all right? This week is kind of when everything crescendos, but at the same time, chapter 26 begins with a bit of a flashback. You know when you're watching a really poorly written show on television, right? Like uh, anything, um, but <laughs> uh, like, you know, there's that one that was important, leverage, right? And the show goes along and they're like, oh, but you don't know everything is this happening in the background, right? And, and you're like, oh, so they put that together. So you can write, this is the trick to Hollywood, you can write whatever garbage you want and then in the background say, oh, but you didn't know this was happening in the background, they set this up, oh, the good guys win, right on, right? And we love those kind of stories because we want the good guys to win. Well, this week we're going to start with that, what's happening in the background, and the problem is it's not going good for the good guys and so you probably won't watch this movie, all right? Which is why it's a book. Um, Also, movies would have been terrifying to first century Jews, right? Like, the people are in the box, and they can't, we can't get to them. I don't, why are they up on the screen? They'd be looking behind the screen, wondering what kind of demon talk this is, so. All right. None of that is in my notes, and I'm wasting time. 
I'm going to read the first 16 verses together, and then I want to talk about that, and then we're going to read the next uh, 13 or 14 all the way to verse 29 today. Um, so verse 26, if you have, or verse 1 of chapter 26, if you have like titles in your Bible, it's called The Plot to Kill Jesus. And everything's moving along, and then there's kind of going to be a flashback to the beginning of the week as Jesus has moved in. He came into Jerusalem on Sunday, and we're going to kind of see what's happening. It's now reached Thursday, but we're going to see what's happening that Jesus didn't know about. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, so everything that Jesus has taught, he's done. He says to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The fourth time he said that he's going to die. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, which was why Jesus was in town, there was this huge celebration, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so there's kind of, if you're watching this as a movie, Jesus has done his big speech. He says to his disciples, all right, let's go. And you just flash back to the sinister high priest meeting in their opulent palace, and they're saying, we need to kill Jesus. And we need to, it needs to be like a snatch and grab so that the crowd doesn't know. And maybe we should wait until after the feast when most people are gone, but we can grab Jesus before he goes. Now, we flash back to Jesus, and this is the Saturday night before he rode into town on a donkey, and they had the big parade, and everyone's like, King Jesus, Jesus should be king. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him from other Gospels. We can know this is most likely Mary, from Mary and Martha, if you read the Bible a lot. Um, but uh, in this story, apparently, her, Matthew doesn't think who it is is important. But a woman comes up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw that they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this, the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring the ointment out on my body, she has done, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then, one of the twelve, and the camera goes from Jesus over to cranky Judas. One of the twelve, who looked particularly sinister and was wearing dark clothing because it's a cheap movie, <laughs> whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. And he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is flashing back and things are happening. And we learn that over the last few weeks, if you've been to church or listening to the podcast, there's been something happening as Jesus has been teaching on the end times and confronting the high priest and doing his parade into town and, and establishing himself as the king, as the king Jesus gospel, as the king over humanity, that in the background, Jesus was actually being betrayed by one of his closest disciples, one of the inner 12 guys who were with Jesus. The thing that we didn't see 
Now all of a sudden we back up and see this thing has been happening while you were getting all excited about Jesus maybe winning. We didn't know that there was a plot underfoot to cut Jesus' legs out from underneath him, to stop this grassroots movement where big religion, the big industry, was going to stop this young startup. And it happens because a woman comes in and breaks some perfume and pours it on Jesus, and everybody's mad about it. The alabaster jar of perfume would have been like... uh, that's um, so expensive. It most likely came from India, and uh, the way that it works is it was so expensive they would actually seal the bottle up, and so it would have a long neck, and in order to use it, you'd actually smash it, and you'd use it all at once. So you'd actually break the bottle off and use it all at once. And the smell of it was so incredible, and the price of it, this is like, this wouldn't be the kind of thing that you buy because you have a date. This is the kind of thing you buy and you pass down to your children. You don't use this kind of stuff. Uh, this kind of stuff would be used like if the king came to your house and like ate with you or something. And so when this woman comes out and smashes the bottle and anoints Jesus' hair, and so you know it wasn't like she pulled out a two-liter and on Jesus' head, all right? Like this isn't, there's would have been no smaller amounts because these people weren't especially rich and it didn't get sold by the gallon, all right? Like this is a smaller amount and it would have been enough that it would have flowed through Jesus's gorgeous hair because he's the main character in the story. But, and, and it would have been quite handsome and strong and those kinds of things because we want to sell tickets to the movie. But, but uh, as it flows down, it would have changed the way Jesus smelled. It would have changed the way the room smelled. And she would have spent what we would have said would be thousands of dollars, like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on making Jesus smell better for this week because he came to visit. Now, Jesus has been going around hanging out with the riffraff, with what we would say like the, uh, the fringe people on society, healing people, feeding people. And the people that you need to feed are the people who don't have food, right? The people that you need to heal are the people who can't get health care or are in such bad shape that they need, like, miraculous care. And so Jesus has been hanging around with the outside, with the knots, with the have-nots. And Judas and the disciples, Judas especially, has been trying to resource this movement. And Apparently, we decide we're going to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on making Jesus smell better. Smell better. And so you know, the way our church operates, when people want to spend money, ministry leaders want to spend money, there's a policy where they don't ask me. Because I have a policy on spending money. No. (laughs) Right? (laughs) The same thing works in my life. The same thing works in my family. And, and the way that our, our church here actually works is I'm not allowed to make those decisions because I'm really good at it. No, right? The, when we don't spend money, we save 100% of our money. And that looks awesome on a receipt. You know, like, hey, you go into the store and they're like, you saved $100. No, I spent 200 I did not save $100, right? You jacked the prices up and then lowered them to trick me into thinking I saved $100, but I just spent 200 right? And then the cashier's like, thank you, sir. Like, <laughs> but, <laughs> but there is this, <laughs> it's awkward, but there is this, 
When this woman decides to spend the money making Jesus smell better, the disciples, to a person like me, are correct in saying this could have been spent to like feed the poor. This could have been spent that way. And then we back up, and so you know, this is real. Like our church has been criticized because we feed popcorn to your children. Oh, yeah. It was, I tried not to giggle, but it was, they were very serious. And then we think about, because we had all that coffee that we drank this morning, and that money could have been given to the poor. Do you know how much this sound system cost? Let me back up. Do you know how much those two things, those four things cost? <laughs> I've had cars cheaper than those, right? They don't sound as, my car don't sound as good as those. But there is, and we sit here and we say, and, and that's pointing at someone else, right? Look at your shoes, right? I would bet, I would bet there are people here wearing shoes. My first car cost me $100. I was saving up for a skateboard and I found a car. <laughs> I didn't have my driver's license, but I lived in the country. And it's like northern Canada, so there's, you know, whatever. <laughs> Rules. Um, police. Um, they, they couldn't find my house. I live so far out in the sticks, so it's all right. But, but there is this, like, uh, when we look at ourselves and we start to wonder and we start to think about these kinds of things, we did, uh, we used to do a thing called 30-hour famine uh, with our youth ministry, and you can actually feed with the uh, Unimix, which is like a UN program where they uh, can feed people in refugee camps or starving parts of the world for about a dollar a day. This kind of gross mixed stuff that uh, we would try to make and feed the children and they the youth, the teens, and they just completely freak out on us like we're trying to poison them or something. But it isn't especially appealing looking or appealing to eating, but it's a buck a day. And we did this in our youth ministry at the same time as we were starting at this church I was at to uh, begin a building campaign, and we were looking at a $7.5 million building. And we're like, a buck a day, we'll see, feed a child. And then the other group would get up and say, we need $7.5 million. <laughs> and it becomes this really weird tension, doesn't it? Because, I mean, you're going to go out for lunch after this and spend enough money where a person could live for a month or two. And what do we do with that? Because there's a tendency to glean on one side or the other, like turn the TV off when those starving kids commercial comes on because I like them, I love them too much, I can't watch that commercial, which is kind of a weird tension in itself. And on the other end, there can become the really judgmental part that's like, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not even going to wear shoes next week, just screw you, Pastor James, right? And <laughs> so that's how judgmental are, you talk like that. And, but there is this, uh, this kind of, tension where we're like we go to an extreme and Jesus's answer becomes really really awkward for them because he's like why are you so mad at this woman she did something beautiful isn't that like well Jesus you don't understand the economics of this whole thing and Jesus apparently did not do good in economics class and that might be comforting to some of you but but there is this kind of tension that they feel like when you think about the great art pieces in the world, the great songs, the great movies, the great paintings, millions of dollars are spent on them. And, and, and immense abilities are spent 
You look at cathedrals in Europe that are incredibly old and Renaissance painters and made stuff. And, and we think if we sold this, we could feed so many people. And Jesus is like, why don't you just let something be beautiful because it's beautiful? And Jesus enters into the tension and doesn't solve it. He increases the tension. Do you see that? Jesus actually says, oh, but this is amazing. And so we'll walk out in the parking lot after and there'll be a fancy car and one person will say, you know, if they drove a crappy car, they could actually feed thousands of people. And they won't be able to appreciate the beauty of the design and the material and the things that went into and the science, frankly, and the noise that that car makes. Does that make sense? And so we think, whose side is Jesus on? And Jesus enters into that and just ups the tension. He's just like, yeah, so this will always be the case. But this woman has done something beautiful, and people will talk about her forever. How much gospeling did this woman do? Right? Do you remember just like a couple weeks ago we talked about when Jesus was doing the judgment at the end of the world? And he talked about, if you fed the poor, you fed me. If you visited the lonely, you visited me. If you clothed the naked, you clothed me. He did not say, if you pour thousands of dollars of ointment on a person, it's like you're pouring it on me. He did not say that. And so if we start to look at this, there's this weird tension because we feel like we want to move into this, um, like going one direction or the other, and Jesus actually holds both at the same time, where he says, yeah, we do this, and we do these beautiful, beautiful things. And these beautiful things often end up being rather expensive. And so Jesus doesn't solve your problem. Like, is it okay to have a boat as long as it's used? <laughs> Jesus would say, why are you ragging on this person's beautiful boat? It's beautiful. Why can't you enjoy that? Because there's this tension, and personally, there might be people that disagree with me, but personally, I think the tension arrives when you don't believe that God can do what God wants to do without you behaving in a certain way. Does this make sense? Like, I have to be like this so that... And this is seriously why I'm so cheap, because I have this weird trick in my brain that says, like, frugalness is actually faithfulness. When Jesus is like, just buy the stupid shirt. It's hilarious, right? <laughs> and I'm like, no, Jesus, if I save that $5, because I buy my shirts online, you can get 12 for like 50 bucks, right? So... I'm not paying more than $5 for a shirt, right? Like, this body does not need that much demonstration. But there is... <laughs> but there is this... If I lift some weights and stuff and start wearing expensive shirts, you know I've been, like, doing my ab workouts. But there is... <laughs> but there is this kind of uh, weird, like, tension that I build into my brain that is wrong that by spending my money in a certain way, I'm a better Christian. And I think it goes both ways, where people will, you can walk into churches that believe in like a health, wealth, and prosperity kind of thing, that think it's a demonstration of God's faithfulness to be on the rich end, just as much as my trick in my brain that it's a demonstration of God's faithfulness to be on the poor end. 
the most faithful people are over there or the most faithful people are over there. And Jesus sits in the middle and says, why can't you just appreciate the beauty of both sides? Like, why can't you just live into this tension? And Judas's reaction is much like much of your reaction, except Judas was much braver than you. Judas says, all right, that's it. This guy needs to go. <laughs> Keeps doing this tension thing. He won't give me a straight answer. Uh, there must be someone who will kill him for me. I know you've thought that, but you're a chicken. And you've thought that about your boss or your pastor because he's preaching this sermon. You're like, I just want a boat. I've been saving up this money. Leave me alone, right? And I'm not going to tell you whether you should get that boat or not. I'm saying you should live in tension all the time. <laughs> now, when Judas can't live with the tension that Jesus creates, he actually meets with the chief priests and is willing to turn Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. That would be, in our culture or economy, around 10 grand. If you're wondering how much it costs to get Jesus killed, it's around 10 grand. And when Judas turns and goes and leaves, everything changes. I want to show you why, but so that you understand, the festival that Jesus is celebrating here is Passover. Passover to the Jews and the Israelite community still to this day is the moment that their country began. It's their 4th of July mo moment. And if you think, it's, I think it's a little bigger, but if you think American history, we, uh, sorry, you and me as an adopted person here, uh, actually legally living here, there is this kind of... Uh, moment where we said the rule that's over us is tyrannous, we're going to push them all out of here. Like, we're, we don't want that no more. And for the Israelite people, Moses was the leader who did this and actually confronted Pharaoh and said, no, this isn't going to happen. And there was a violent movement of God against the Egyptian people, and the Israelites walked out. And that celebration where they remember that is Passover. Now, when they're celebrating it at this moment, they all come into the city of Jerusalem. Everyone who possibly can comes into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this 4th of July type celebration, except right now they're not living in freedom. They're desiring a new Moses who will lead them to a new freedom, right? Because the Roman Empire is ruling over the whole world, including the city of Jerusalem and the country of Israel. And so there's this incredible amount of like 4th of July, nationalistic, patriotic, fever that's going on in the people. And Jesus feels this, and Jesus desires this, and he wants to show them that he actually is a new Moses. He's actually going to walk them into something new. And this is how this goes down. Let me read this. Now, this is verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Jesus said, go into the city, and a certain man to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus has directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And if you're watching a movie, we find out that Jesus actually knew the thing that we think Jesus didn't know. And you see why this is an amazing movie? Uh, so... And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? And there's a huge amount of tension as they're wondering, am I the one who's going to betray Jesus? And Jesus answered, he who has dipped his hand 
in the dish with me will betray me. And so, you know, the way they ate, it was all like finger food and the ketchup and the sauce and stuff would be in the middle. And so you'd take your food and dip it and then eat it. But they had common dipping things, right? So um, everyone would have dipped into the central thing. So at this point, it's everyone. The Son of Man goes as it has written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. If you can back up just for a second, I'm going to point something out. Did you see what everyone else is asking in verse 22? Is it I, Lord? Do you see what Judas asked? Is it I, teacher? Is it I, rabbi? To me, that's the fundamental difference between someone who is serving Jesus because he's their Lord and is like following Jesus because he's their teacher. If Jesus is just teaching you how to live a better life, eventually you will leave. If Jesus is the king over your life, you will find nowhere else to go. The people who see Jesus as Lord don't see another option. The people who see Jesus as a good teacher see that maybe there are other good teachers. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after, let me back up again. There's never actually a place in the, in the Bible where Judas calls Jesus Lord. All right, that's why that's important. Verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Which is a confusing thing to say when you're passing a loaf of bread around. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the, that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Jesus is being betrayed, and he's being betrayed by someone who's closer to him than like one of his 12 inner circle friends, one of his 12 disciples, one of the 12 people that he invested in. It becomes an interesting thing if you're a teacher or a leader or a coach, because even Jesus only rolled with 11 out of 12 success rate. So if you've got that one kid that is just a Judas, Jesus understands. That should be like an inspirational poster inside the teacher's desk, right? Like not on the wall, just inside. Even Jesus had a Judas. All right, okay, I can handle this day. <laughs> Judas leaves to betray Jesus, and Jesus actually takes this Passover celebration that they would have been participating in anyways, and he changes it, and he passes around this bread, and he says, this bread is my body, which is going to be broken for you. Take it and eat, which is... For a Jewish person to eat a person's body was as unclean as, as we think it is unclean. And then he passes around a cup, which would have had wine or grape juice or some kind of variant, so it's culturally appropriate of that. And he says, this is a cup is my blood, which is the new covenant. And when he uses that word covenant, at the Passover... The people are aware that Moses was the initiator or the mediator of the covenant which made them a country, which made them a people. And what Jesus is doing is making them a new people. 
What Jesus is doing is saying, we were over there, and now we're going over here. That this, this moment, this day, is the day when this is all going down. And Judas leaves, and it's nighttime when Judas goes out, and it's dark out, and he's going, and he knows where Jesus is going to go because he gets the soldiers, and he's going to bring them to Jesus. And Jesus is going to be arrested, and he's going to be killed, and we know that. But in this moment of the movie, everything changes. Because the thing that we thought Jesus was doing was establishing his kingship over everyone. And what Jesus is doing is actually leading his people out of a false kingdom into the kingdom of God, out of a land of chaos, of effort of legalistic following rules of trying to impress God into a kingdom which is based on Jesus his body being broken his blood being shed and in doing that he absorbs the totality of God's wrath for our sins and provides the means by which the grace by which we enter into a relationship with God so for a couple thousand years Christians have been taking small pieces of bread and saying, this bread is the body of Jesus, which is broken for me. And they're taking little cups, or sometimes they take big cups and share them, but we'll take little cups. And they say, this cup is the blood of Jesus, which was shed so that I can leave what I was and become what I can be so that what I was is no longer relevant or no longer worth celebrating or thinking about, but where I'm going is what matters. And so we're going to participate in communion together. We're not going to take this passage and say, therefore, do these three action steps. What we're actually going to do is physically get up and move to tables. There's one at the back and there's two at the front. And pick up a little piece of bread and a little cup and... Go back to your seat and you can eat that bread at your own leisure and drink the cup. We just use grape juice because that's our, our choice. And there is, you're going to participate in this ritual with all the other followers of Jesus in this room. Because all of us in participating in this ritual are actually signifying our enjoyment of the new covenant which Jesus provides. We live in a different space than the people who don't know Jesus, which doesn't make us better or worse. It's just a different reality as we live in relationship with God. And we'll not just join together with the people in this room, but we join together with 2,000 years worth of Christians who've taken this thing that Jesus did and repeated it and repeated it and repeated it as we remember that everything we are, everything that we have, everything that we experience is completely dependent on the work of Jesus. The Bible teaches us that if you're not a follower of Jesus, it would be better for you not to participate in communion because it won't carry the meaning and it won't actually be It's designed for people who follow Jesus. And we don't have like a test at the front. Like when you come up, we're like, well... We're not going to do that. <laughs> because some of the people who come up 
will be just barely struggling by to follow Jesus. And Jesus' body and blood was broken and shed for them. Some people have been following Jesus for decades, decades and decades, and meaningful and feel close to him. And this is a reminder all the time for them. But this isn't a table of the inside and the outside. This is a table where the Christians, from all sorts of different perspectives, from all sorts of different experiences, even different theologies, gather together and say, we, are, we have common union in Jesus, and specifically in Jesus' broken body and in his shed blood. So I'm going to pray for us. This is how we do this at the Grove, if you've never done this here. I'm going to pray for us. The band will come out, I think, and play some music. And as we worship for the rest of our time here together this morning, you can come up. I think we're going to sing two more songs, but you can come up and get some bread and get, some, get a little cup and take it back to your chair. We don't really do lines, like as far as getting in line and doing it orderly. You can go around people. Because we think at the table, none of the disciples were lining up and behaving. I also don't think Peter took the smallest piece he could, if you know Peter. So if you see a big piece and you want to take a big piece because you need a little more of Jesus today, that's totally kosher. (laughs) Because while this is like the holiest of the holy things we do, it's also the humanest of the human things we do because it connects us really to who God dreams of us being and it connects us to each other which is part of who God dreams of us being. So I'm going to pray for us and then you can come up you can participate, you can even be first if you want to and like no, everyone needs that first person and then we'll, you can return to your seat eat and drink and we'll worship together so let me pray for us Lord um We come to you with grateful hearts, obviously, because you have ushered in this new covenant through your broken body and your shed blood. And as we look at your experience of the Holy Week and leading into what we know to be what we would observe on Good Friday, we look at this and understand that you are allowing yourself to take on everything that hinders us, that traps us, that impedes us, that keeps us from being in right relationship with God. Together, Lord, we would ask that you would forgive us of our sin. There might be some of us here who have sinned that we're holding on to that's actually trying to take the place of you in our life. And we pray that you would free us from that, that you would, your spirit would move us to a place that we call repentance, where we move away from the things that keep us from you or move us away from you and allow us to experience you in this moment today, God. As we participate in communion together, we pray that it would be a means of your grace, meaning that we would experience who you are as you, for the very first time, broke the bread and took the cup and passed it around. We thank you for bringing us into your circle, Jesus and allowing us to experience you even 2,000 years later to experience you together and experience you historically with the saints who have gone before us and the saints who will come after. In your name we pray.
Amen.